This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week getting the take of our Zoomer squad on items in the news affecting older Canadians. The week prior, Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick released her annual report. It included damning details about the state of our health care and long-term care systems. Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge and Marissa Lennox of CARP weighed in on this topic, as well as the decision by the federal Liberals to offer a New Year tax break to middle-class Canadians. I'm not sure that someone making $140,000 a year is necessarily middle-class, but I suppose that's the definition that the Liberal government has um, committed to. Um, and I imagine, you know, certainly a lot of people in the Zoomer audience would benefit from that. There are a lot of people that are making less than $140,000 a year. And with the costs of living rising constantly, they could they could probably benefit from a few extra dollars in their pocket every year for sure. Peter? It'll help uh, individuals. You know, the most they'll save is 300 a year for families, 600 a year. So, I mean, it, it was an election promise and, and they fulfilled it very early. So uh, that's rather interesting. Mm-hmm. David, what do you think? Well, every dollar is a dollar. I think it's uh, they, they did make that pledge. They did fulfill it. You can quibble about um is it enough? Uh, where's the cutoff? But frankly, any political party is going to define it any way they want. There's going to be critics on both sides of that. You're giving it to people who earn too much. No, you should increase the threshold. I think on balance, they need to be given credit for having followed on what they promised. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the health stuff. That's uh, fairly scary. Uh, Marissa, out of all that smorgasbord of, of bad news, uh, what what do you think is the most pressing? I think it's all pressing, right? I mean, it's painting a picture of a pretty bleak healthcare system for Canadians. And I know that we've talked about this on your show before. We spend sky high on spending as a percentage of GDP compared to other OECD countries, and the results are pretty bottom of the barrel. Now, the one thing that stood out to me was just how poor the meal services in long-term care. And we know that food is a huge part of quality of life, and it's difficult to put a price tag on it. But if you look at the total amount that is spent on food in long-term care and you divide it by the number of people living in long-term care, you're looking at dollars a nine, day. Nine dollars a day. And the only yeah, province that's worse, yeah. as you mentioned, is Nova Scotia. That's around, for harm. That's, that's, that's for leaving surgical no, instruments. Nova Scotia in is also worse on spending long-term care for right. food. It's about five dollars a day. Okay? Yeah. I, I mean, that's, and, that's the money and, they have. And again, we're not asking for caviar and champagne here. But what we are asking is that these people be fed the kind of meal that you, hey, bureaucrats, are ex- expect to be fed at night when you go home. Mm. Or, you know, Minister Elliot, what do you eat? Do you eat three-month-old expired eggs? Because that's what's being served to patients in long-term care. There's almost always, you know, one thing that really sticks in everybody's brain. And it, it, David, you know, it wasn't 
even just the quality of the food. There was certainly that, but uh, people were getting their meals late in terms of there are a lot of people who need help eating. They weren't getting the help eating. It's because there aren't enough people. I mean, and a lot of this is, is an old story that we keep trying to hammer away at. Well, I think I think that's true, and I think the, the most serious thing to me, and I looked at the long-term care thing, I also looked at the local health, the LINS and CHC critiques, and now now the disability thing, and there's a common denominator that runs through it all, and that is that there doesn't appear to be any management. These All these groups, all these silos, and I mean, they should be siloed. Obviously, some a different group is going to worry about long-term care than are going to worry about disability payments. But all of these different subsections of the bureaucracy failed to meet measurements, self-imposed criteria for monitoring and for measurement that they had said they were going to do. And, and, and the big critique was that they didn't even look at the stuff. If you look at the disability numbers, the fraud, the, the fact that it went up because so many more people are, are collecting disability insurance, but the ministry was unable to say who these people were and why they were collecting. They weren't monitoring it. Well, the local health care, they weren't monitoring it. So it looks like system-wide, they're just, nobody's keeping track of anything. What we heard also from the people in the health care, a failure of management, a failure of working backwards from the needs of the patient who supplies those needs, which are the nurses, the professionals. Does the system exist to help or to get in the way? And right now it seems from both sides the system is getting in the way. Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This past Tuesday marked the one-year anniversary of the arrest and imprisonment of Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in China. Their detention is seen as a retaliatory move by the Chinese government after the arrest of Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wenzhou, in Vancouver, December 1st of last year, at the request of the U.S. government. Meng is being allowed to enjoy Vancouver at her leisure while her trial continues. Kovrig and Spavor are being held in cramped jail cells where the lights are kept on all night and they have no access to lawyers. According to Kovrig's boss, he's coping, but there is no indication when and how they might be released. Libby Snymer discussed the situation with Dr. Jeremy Paltiel, professor of politics, government, and foreign policies of Asia. Dr. Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. And Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. I don't have any hope they will be released anytime soon, just because I think our posture with China has been very, very bad. We've been seen as the weakling, uh, a medium power country that uh, cannot stand up for China. And China does not respect anybody who do not stand up strong to them, uh-huh. despite what they're saying. Dr. Paul Thiel, do you agree? Well, I don't say that that's necessarily the reason why, but I don't expect them to be released soon because China has said very clearly that uh, it's the the key to everything is uh, Meng Wanzhou. So um, I think that uh, they will hold on until the case of Meng Wanzhou is resolved or as it moves forward. You know, we just heard that her case might take years. Dr. Holden? It's possible. 
the if you have good lawyers, and she certainly has very good lawyers, and if the rulings go against her, that is in the extradition hearing, and she is in theory bound for extradition in the United States, uh, the appeal process can drag out for years. We had a case of the of the attempting to we were attempting to deport a smuggler from China. It took us eleven years. Uh, I'm not suggesting it'll take that long. I personally think that something will give before then, but I would say ex- expectations that it would be resolved in the next several months are very modest. I would agree that the Chinese are determined that they will not get out until, and unless Madame Meng's case is disposed of, and I would also note that she's not actually under house arrest. She's free to roam about the city uh, at leisure. Uh, I think that uh, we're in it. We're in a box, and there's no exit readily in sight. To make things worse,、uh, this is all in the context of Huawei、uh, trying to dominate the market and 5G. And you recently have the news that her father, the founder of Huawei, has decided that he would now move his research facilities from、uh, California. To、uh, somewhere in Canada, so that's like、uh, dangling a- another bait、uh, for Canadians to bite up to it and、uh, and further their ambition、um, of kind of、uh, you know dominating the this, the technology scene. Doctor Paltiel, well, this is a, this whole issue of、uh, the five G technology in Huawei is a very complex one. Much of the 5G technology of Huawei has been was developed in Canada by Canadian researchers who used to work for Nortel, but Nortel went bankrupt, and Huawei then hired the engineers.、Um, so,、uh, if we ban Huawei, as is possible,、um, two things are two things are po- will happen: is that a our competitiveness as a nation will decline. Because Canadian technology will not be able to be used. Secondly,、um, it also will mean that、um, you know that that the the United States, by the way, has no player in 5G. The only other players in 5G are are Ericsson and、um, one other company. So the, this is a, this is a high stakes game, but I think it's also important to remember. That、um, the reason, one reason why the Chinese were so upset with the arrest of Ms. Meng, was that this the ban on Huawei was announced by Mr. Trump about two weeks before her arrest, and Chinese read the arrest of Ms. Meng as Canadians piling on to the、uh, trade war that's being initiated by the United States. We have we, we have to keep that in mind. So I mean the, the whole the whole game is rather complex. Um, Huawei, you know, I have no particular brief for Huawei one way or another, but we have to understand that、uh, Huawei is is a is a player in Canada. In Canada, at least five different universities、um, get research funding from Huawei and、uh, produce intellectual property here.、Um, so it's not simply a, a, a simple matter of、um, you know a, a big bad. Company trying to push us around. It's also a question of what kind of, you know, competitive strategy we have.
Dr. Jeremy Paltiel, Professor of Politics, Government and Foreign Policies of Asia. Dr. Gordon Holden, Director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. And Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The new North American Free Trade Deal, known as USMCA, and the federal liberals' new middle class tax break. These were among the hot topics discussed when our Tuesday strategy panel got together. Libby Snymer was joined by Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stins, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. I've always cherished the fact that NAFTA was a conservative achievement back in the 80s under Brian Mulroney and, uh, and something that uh, has, been, uh, has been cherished and for, for Canadians and for jobs and manufacturers for the last, you know, 30 plus years or so. Um, the fact that we've had to go through this new process with the new president uh, was a challenging time for, for everyone, including the, our prime minister at the time uh, and, uh, and uh, Minister Chrystia Freeland. But um, just last week, it was challenging. Exactly. Well, exactly. just last week, it was challenging, but it's been challenging all along. And I guess there's, there's also devil in the details. We have to see what, what substantive changes were, were made or have been made and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there's some challenges with respect to any quotas, um, you know, with our economy being a bit sluggish or Canadian economy being a bit sluggish, you know, we need access to the to the American market. So hopefully the quotas that, that the, the president said that he wanted to make sure that all, everything was all made in America uh, isn't there or at least isn't as strong as we, we expect so that it's not limiting to our manufacturers and to our businesses here. But all in all, I would say that, you know, just having a deal with Mexico and the U.S. is great news for Canada. Anybody disagree? No, and, and hopefully it sets the stage for further trade deals that can get signed and ratified and um, because I think that um, no one is winning when we're in trade wars with anyone, uh, particularly if we're uh, having conflict with the U.S. and China. It's not good for our economy. We're an export economy. We rely on these agreements. And uh, so hopefully it sets the stage for, for more. And yeah, the pseudo-historian in me has to correct John on one small detail. It was Brian Mulroney who brought in the Canada-U.S. trade agreement, and it was actually Jacques Crecha who brought in the North American trade Okay, uh, <laughs> Okay, the three amigos. <laughs> who could forget? Uh, moving along to that middle-class tax cut. So, um, I mean, again, what's, what's not to like, except I think it's going to benefit people who are beyond the middle class as well. Well, I, I, I'd say, you know, and again, as a conservative, I, uh, tax cuts tax cuts are great news, and I've always supported tax cuts, and our party's always been uh, uh, supporters of, of tax cuts, but it does speak to the issue of the middle class and, and the fact that, uh, and we've talked about it on the show before, too, Libby, the sense of what, what, what defines the middle class, and who is the middle class, and, and you know, we've got we've got a minister now in charge of the middle class, and, and I'm not sure that's, they... That's a little Orwellian, too, isn't well, it? Well, and I'm not sure they understand what the middle class exactly. is, and, and, and does it, is it a moving target all the time, and it can be, and I'll tell you, people who, uh, families who make a certain amount of money that might be considered middle class, probably don't consider themselves middle class given given the prices that are going up and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, taxes are taxes. And I think uh, tax cuts are tax cuts. And, and those are important for um, Canadians to, to ensure that money is back in their pockets. Because I've always believed that uh, consumers are the best, you know, spenders of their own money and, and how, to, how to best use their own money. Um, but again, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, who benefits from this. And, and quite frankly, to see whether or not the prime minister in his, in his you know, move to say that, you know, it's for the tax cuts. And he's always criticized Andrew Sheer for saying, well, we're all about the 1%. Well, this creeps into that potential 1% uh, of, of those who might be benefiting from this tax cut. So he might be careful of what he, what he, what he says and how he attacks uh, Sheer on this. 
the middle class in a city is different than a middle class in in, in, in an outer suburban area. And we've seen some of the pressures that uh, residents are facing in Brampton and the surrounding areas of the GTA. And and I, I actually think that this is really um, partly targeted to where the liberal support is, which is in the cities in Ontario, and that um, to, to help provide some relief. And um, if you're making, you know, $100,000 in downtown Toronto, it's not the same as $100,000 in Sarnia. It just isn't in terms of what you can... Yeah, but you're more likely to make it in Toronto than in Sarnia. True, unless you're a teacher. Uh, but it, uh, it, those are the things that I think the Liberals, at some level, I'm guessing, um, are, are thinking about when they're, when they're thinking about who, this, who benefits the most from this tax cut. Charles, does this help them in a minority parliament? Uh, does this help them with uh, their friends in the NDP? Or is it a little too rich, rich to rich people? Well, I mean, let's remember that the liberals really campaigned on the notion of strengthening the middle class. And like we all consider ourselves middle class, let's face it. If you're making $30,000 a year, $300,000 a year, most people are naturally inclined to consider themselves as middle class. So it is a bit of a a catch-all phrase. But the reality is that any tax cut that delivers three to $600 back to an individual um, is a step in the right direction. It is um, money going back into into the pockets of taxpayers, and that is inherently politically a good thing. And ironically, I mean, that's one of the ways that conservatives have usually gotten a leg up on liberals, which is the, the the constant cry of we will we will bring you tax cuts, and that is, I mean, very very difficult to counter politically. So it's actually good to see the federal liberals doing it. Our Tuesday strategy panel: Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto; Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village; and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The latest Fraser Institute report on wait times for medical treatment in Canada contains some good news and bad news. We've learned the median wait time across the country is more than five months at just under 21 weeks, the second longest wait time ever recorded, according to the report. But here in Ontario, we're doing better with the shortest total wait of 16 weeks. Joining Libby to break down the numbers and other findings, the report's co-author, Bacchus Barua, Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. After a very brief reprieve that we had in, um, in, in 2018, where the wait times dropped from uh, the record high of 21.2 weeks to about 19.8 weeks, wait times are on the rise again. This week, this year, it's 20.9 weeks. Uh, it's part of a long, consistent trend that we've seen over the last three decades uh, with increasing wait times in Canada. One of the things that you measured and one of the things I find with just people I know is the wait time between a referral from a GP to getting an appointment with a specialist and then the wait time between the appointment from the specialist and actually getting the treatment. So what do those numbers look like? Yeah, so Ontario's you know traditionally done better than the national median, and absolutely this year it is um, the province again with the shortest wait time. Uh, but it's important for us to remember that that's the shortest wait time in a country with remarkably long wait times. Uh, so Ontario's wait time is 16 weeks this year. Um, just to provide a little bit of context, in 1993 when we first started measuring wait times, uh, the wait time in Ontario was just nine weeks. So over time, it has uh, the situation has deteriorated quite considerably. 
Um, as you mentioned, we, we do measure wait time in two different segments. Uh, so we measure it uh, between uh, getting a referral from your general practitioner to actually seeing a specialist, and that's about eight weeks in Ontario. Uh, and then from uh, seeing your specialist to actually getting treatment is another eight weeks um, after that. Recently, uh, we have seen a big uptick in the number of doctors, grad- newly graduated doctors. Well, you know, my the, the, the research that I've done on that, you know, really leads to the conclusion that that increase is, is very, very little and very, very late. Um, Canada was actually on par with other countries with, with universal health care till about, I would say, the late 70s, the early 80s. And then in the early 1990s, there was a huge divergence uh, where the ratio of physicians per capita kind of stayed constant in Canada. But for the rest of the OECD countries kept increasing. Um, it seems like our government's kind of realized the mistake and, and tried to fix it in the early 2000s. And we're starting to graduate more doctors. But again, because of the strange way that that Canadian healthcare is, is structured and funded. Um, there were reports, I, I believe, in 2012 and 2014, that were indicating that some of the doctors that were graduating could not actually get jobs. Again, because of the the, the unique nature in which we we have an over reliance on government. So, um, yes, the the physician per per capita uh, population is is um, apparently is, is is increasing, but uh, at the same time, we're way way behind um, other countries with universal healthcare. Um, and even when these doctors are graduating, sometimes they're not actually getting uh, to actually practice. Bacchus, one thing I see here, which I think is a big bright spot, is that the shortest wait time is for cancer treatment, which is very urgent. What do you make of that? You know, you're right. Um, uh, we are able to, you know, apparently the system is triaging correctly. Um, so we do have shorter wait times for uh, things like radiation and medical oncology. Uh, but even there, the wait time is is fairly long. It's it's about four weeks on average. Uh, and we have much longer wait times for things like orthopedic surgery, which was 34 weeks in Ontario. But at the same time, we also have very long wait times for things like neurosurgery. In fact, the, the wait times just to get a consultation with a neurosurgeon um, in, in Ontario was 20 weeks. And, and that's a, that's a really um, uh, critical um, uh, critical surgery. I think there even, is a, a shortage of neurosurgeons. Possibly, um, and 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 the thing is, even when it comes to something like like orthopedic surgery, just because it's not going to kill you, it doesn't mean that that gives the system the right to uh, make patients wait for 34 weeks on average. These are patients who may be in considerable pain, who may not be able to do their jobs properly, uh, and they're being asked to wait uh, for, for um, two-thirds of a year in order to get that treatment. In all of these other countries that are outperforming us, hospitals are actually funded according to activity. That means every time a patient comes in, the hospital actually gets money to treat that patient. In Canada, more generally, hospitals are funded by budgets. And and again, that's a consequence of the way that we've structured it so that every time a patient comes in, they actually are eating into the hospital's budget and, 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 and running that town. It's it's really a combination of these three things. It, you know, absolutely, you know, just private is not the answer. Just cost sharing is not the answer. And just uh, activity-based funding is not. But these are three things that countries that perform better than us do differently. And until we start to look at them and see how that works in a Canadian context, I'm afraid we'll continue to see wait times rise just as we are right now. Bacchus Barua, Associate Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Darcy in Lindsay, Ontario, who says it's good news that Andrew Scheer has stepped down because the Conservative leader should embrace Canadian values. I'm a longtime Conservative, and I've expressed my views to my local MP that I think it was time for Andrew to move on. He's a great, he's a nice man. He's got a great family. But his social conservative views that have never been clearly stated or denied over the years have just hurt us badly. He's not, he hasn't been a strong supporter of the LGBTQ community. He hasn't come out and said unequivocally that same-sex marriage would not be coming up as another issue, nor abortion. And these things just killed us in the last election, particularly in the urban areas. I mean, we did fine in the rural areas where we should, but... No seats hardly in the in the major cities, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal. We just it doomed us. So I've I've stated unequivocally to the party that I will not support them financially any longer unless he's moved removed. That does it for today's best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.